This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com view. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Chris Fritz, and today on our panel, we have Tessa. Hello. Ben Hong. Hello. And Ari Clark. Sup. And our honored guest is all of us. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Chris. It's so good to be here. No, so no, amazing. no. Chris, I'm, the honor I'm is so all honored. mine. Please. <laughs> like, thank you. It's like, it's just great to meet your heroes. And wow. Oh, okay. Well, not, oh, God. Oh, thank you. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, anyway, our topic for today, this is a panel episode, <laughs> is reusable components. And if anyone is like the special guest of this episode, I, I think it would have to be Ben Hong because you give a workshop and you've done it with Damien, Damien Dulish, also on the VIEW team on reusable components or ridiculously reusable components is right. I think what the workshop <laughs> is called. Yeah, that's the official title. So would it be a good place to start with just like, what is a reusable component? Like, are all components reusable? Yeah, that's a good what question. I'd be curious to hear from, let's start with Ari. What, is, what does reusable components mean to you? Wow, just uh, punting the question. Right? Wow. Um, <laughs> components whose logic can be used for multiple applications of that component. So I think one that I always strive to write but fail to write well is a reusable dropdown. <laughs> so someday, someday I will master it. How about you, Tessa? I would guess that a reusable component, um, the thing that I always think about is the API, like what bindings can you make on the component and also just designing it in a way that like it's, it's flexible, but also doesn't give you a headache later. And I get a lot of headaches. You and me both. <laughs> I loved a lot of things you all said, and you know, as far as what that makes up. And Chris, what does reusable components mean to you? I, I definitely agree with what Ari and Tessa said. And a, another thing is that like some components can have more than one instance, and sometimes it's not possible for them to have more than one instance. Like let's say you have like a modal component where you only want one modal to ever appear on the page at the same time. Like that's reusable in the sense that you can use it for different kinds of modals. Like if it's if it's pretty generic. And you can just provide a content. But it might not be reusable in the sense that like, you don't want three different modals like, stacked on top of each other. Because <laughs> that's just a confusing interface. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think there are different kinds of reusability that, that people talk about. And, and like, complete reusability isn't always something that you aim for. Sometimes you really do just want one modal. And sometimes you do want a component that's, that's very specific and, and does like, one specific kind of job. We like not to reinvent the wheel. Like I, I've seen some applications with 20 different kinds of button components, not because there are 20 different kinds of buttons. It's usually like there are like three kinds of buttons. And actually 20 is a little bit of an exaggeration. I think probably like a dozen different buttons is, is probably the, the, the most That's I've seen. Different, different kinds of buttons, yeah. No, actually I have seen more than that. <laughs> Not naming any names. It was my code base. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I've been complicit in this kind of stuff too. 
But I mean, yeah, you can you can keep creating a new kind of component that basically does the same kind of thing as most of your other buttons. When really sometimes you might just have a few different kinds of buttons. You might have a button that turns into a loader while you're waiting for it to do something, some kind of submit or update button or a search button. You might also have like a special kind of button that you want attached to other things, like for a search box, you might want that to be attached. And there's so like there are different like aspects, different kinds of features that buttons can have. And you want to be able to mix and match those as much as you you can. And that can be easier said than done. I think that the first thing that people often try to do in making reusable components is adding tons and tons of props. And I've been guilty of this too. Have Mm -hmm. have other people also done this? Oh, definitely. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) What are props? And I'm in props hell. (laughs) I once created a button component that uh, Damien very, very kindly made fun of me a little bit for. (laughs) That it just just got to a point where there, I think there were 20 different props for something that seems like it should be pretty simple. Mm-hmm. And little. yeah, at each point, it seemed like, oh, we just need to add like a little bit of extra functionality and then it should be fine. And then it got to the mm-hmm. point where it's, it's really difficult to maintain and think about and to remember like how to use this and, and even like really difficult to compose because like all the different options that you can pass to it and each prop is basically an option. When you get to 20, you don't just have like 20 different possibilities to think about. You have all of the possibilities for all of those combined and, and multiplied into actually like hundreds or thousands of different like combinations of those options that you have to make sure all work. Mm-hmm. But somehow Which, it's always the darkest timeline. I feel like that you end up in granting <laughs> opportunities. Yeah. Roll the one. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, I think one of the things that I really enjoy about like your workshop, Ben, is talking about some alternatives to props and when are props good? And like, when are they, when are they bad? And this is an open question for anybody. Like when have you regretted using props? Like for what kinds of use cases and when are props appropriate? I've got a bad props story. Yeah, go ahead. Using props for theming. It's never a good idea because not only do you end up with very brittle functionality in terms of colors you can choose, you end up with a lot of CSS that you really did not need. (laughs) (laughs) And a whole lot of conditional classes. So yes, I learned the hard way. That's not a good approach. (laughs) Little known fact, prop is actually short for uh, pre-optimization. Oh, I'm stealing that. Uh, but yeah, no, basically like my experience a lot of times is similar to what Ari said, where I'll try to come up with a magic component that can do everything. It's just Mr. Right. And I don't think that necessarily a component that has a lot of options that you can change via props is a bad approach. But I do think a lot of times like that means probably that I'm approaching my thinking on how to solve the problem from the wrong direction, where probably having those options should be the end result of trying to think of how to solve the problem, if that makes sense. So I'm like jumping the gun to all the options I want to have rather than trying to focus on the bare necessities that I need the component to accomplish. So like overthinking it. 
Yeah, kind of like I'm picking out my accessories before the main outfit or something. I'm like, I <laughs> I like go out that. naked. <laughs> That's a, a analogy. great analogy. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. So when are some times that like props like are, are really, really useful or like, you, you know, you wouldn't want to use an alternative like uh, a slot. Mm-hmm. Like, like when would you always want to use a prop over a, a slot? So I know in my experience, whenever you're working with a team that has like really sort of strong design system guidelines, for example, like an alert box, right? An alert box that like if it's a danger warning, it's going to be the certain red. And then maybe like, you know, if it's a success, it'll be green. Those are the kind of cases where if the developers are not going to be given that flexibility to just change the colors at whim, it can be useful to have those sort of set in it via prop so that, again, it's limited to what the design system has set forth. whereas other things like what content should go inside of the element can instead be set by more flexible APIs like the slot that you mentioned. Got it. So making it easy for people to follow best practices. Whereas with a slot, like you're basically delegating that full responsibility to the parent mm-hmm. and saying, here, you just render whatever you want. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I think it's easy with props, especially early on, because it's so easy to configure that to a lot of what people are saying, you kind of get a little bit zealous with like trying to like you almost like you're trying to document everything, all the requirements that have come down at some point. But the reality, ultimately, as, as people have said, and I'm sure people have experienced, is that because you get so bogged down with all of the various options, that it basically becomes cumbersome. And it's no longer really, you know, we were talking about reusable components. And, you know, I know to me, you know, in addition to what everyone else has said, it's really about making the developer's life easier. And especially as all of us know, when something has a lot of options and APIs, it's no longer easy to use anymore. Now you have to read like, and that's assuming they documented it well with like, whether it's required default or their types. And that's a lot to go through for a lot of times as things that's, I mean, we've all just been talking about like a button component, but even other things can be fairly complex. So yeah, even just like a search page, Mm -hmm. we want there to be like a search input and a search button and we want there to be results. And we want those results to be paginated and we want those results to be sorted. And we want to be able to like refresh results when new results come in. And we want, (laughs) and we want to be able to like have people like star certain results. And then some results are actually not going to be results. They're going to be ads. And we need to put those ads at the top and at the bottom of every page, (laughs) but they should be related to the search still. And then like you end up with like all these different features that start out as maybe like one component that's just like this, like, it's just like a search component. It's like, okay, this is what we do for our search. But it gets so complex. Like you end up having like dozens of different features in there and it becomes a nightmare to work on. And am I the only one who's like had components before where they just like don't want to look at it anymore? Definitely have done that before. And no one wants to look at it, actually. <laughs> and you're using, like, it's gotten so complex and you have so many different domains in there that even words like item, you find yourself <laughs> using in, like, 10 different contexts. Uh, yeah. Yep. And so you, whenever you see item, you don't even know what that means anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think what's tricky about props is that because it's one of the first things that people learn from, like, a communication standpoint as far as passing data along, they use it as a technique to do, you know, it's an easy technique to use. But rather, when I look at props, I think over time and through a lot of mistakes, it's really more about like, once something has been, I would say like, once you get beyond like the third, I don't know, I would say three to five is my limit where I really start questioning whether props have started 
to get out of hand, to be honest, because that's like where you need to realize like when you're defining props, it should be what I like. It's like data-driven props. So you have so many instances, right? In the event of like theming, for example, like Ari's point is great. Like if you try to define like, oh, we can be purple, but blue. And then like what's magenta, what's lavender, then it's crazy. But if you have over time seen that the component used in the event that, again, it's used so frequently that there are these use cases to drive those prop instances, then those are great times where props actually make sense. But to have data to back that up rather than using features to drive prop definitions, um, I think is one way of trying to avoid like a component that's just full of props that are just hard to navigate. I wonder if also because the props are like the first or the simplest place where you get data that's not necessarily directly tied to the component itself, that it's kind of conceptually tied to a certain stage in the component development process. Like, for example, a lot of developers, I think, think of design as like the single step that happens and is completed before coding, like a waterfall kind of process where like a lot of times it's more of a a back and forth or a cycle. And I feel like I see a lot of components where props kind of feel like that design first step where like they've ossified over time. And then when you start pulling in data from other sources, the props never get updated. So like, for example, I was recently working on a simple input component. So the input component had a can edit prop, which meant that whatever parent was using that component had permission to edit the inputs in that prop. There was also is edit, which meant that it was in some kind of editable uh, form instead of like you were just looking at the data. Now somebody was editing it. But then also the component was getting user can edit from the store, which determined if the user had editing permission. So like you would think at that point, maybe it's time to take a step back and determine if we needed all three of these and like how they work together. But then a lot of components were using one kind of data transformation route and then the others were using the others. So it's like a whole mess. And I feel like it's, it's hard to remind ourselves that like we have to keep on going back and forth between all the different pieces. So like the, the complexity between components like and, and also different parts of the application can also contribute to it and can be difficult to wrangle out like where to keep certain code. I mean, even within the component itself, like scrolling is hard, Chris. No, I'm just kidding. But I mean, sometimes, yeah, it's a little hard. It's a little hard. Scrolling? Yeah, sometimes, yeah. So it sounds like props are good for some things some of the time. And it's, it's especially good, I, I think uh, Ari was saying, for situations where, or no, this was Ben was saying it, where you want to set some kind of best practice. You know, we want people to only use these three different kinds of colors and they can choose, but they don't get an option for one of those other ones. And you can use validators and stuff like that for props to make sure that that happens. But then having too many props is bad. And one alternative that we've touched on briefly is just having stuff in slots. And having something in a slot is basically just like saying, okay, well, the parent can figure out how they want to handle it. So we're giving them the ultimate freedom, but also like more responsibility in what goes there. It's it's a hard balance trying to figure out which is the right use case to go with props or slots, because like you said, it's that, it's that balance between clearly defined boundaries and sort of open boundaries. And I don't know about other people, but I am often working in a situation where the requirements are a little murky when I have to start work on it. 
And so at first it may seem like slots were the right way to go, but then as you know, the requirements become more defined, it's more clear that certain like rigid boundaries have to be set. And then I'm like, oh crap, I have to undo all of this. Or I, you know, I can just reinvent the wheel every time I put something in a slot. (laughs) For me, it's always hard to strike that balance. And so like, sometimes it feels like the right answer to how should I make a reusable component is it depends, which is everybody's favorite answer to any question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, And really like my definition of when we get to a component that's too complex or has too many props is, is not even like, I think Ben, you were saying like, oh, five is maybe a bit too much. For me, it's just like, whenever she's like, I don't want to do it. Whenever I open that component and I'm thinking like, I want to. Oh my God, yes. Or if someone else is, is opening that component and feeling like, oh, I don't want to. Or like when they're, they're like assigned a task, you know, in morning standup and they're just like, oh, I think, I think Chris has more experience with that one with that part of the app. So maybe they should take on that. That's a sign that there's something wrong with it. Like when there's one person on the team who who always gets those tasks because they're the only ones who know how to make sense of it, that means it's a component that doesn't really make sense. Like it's it's too complex. And so we can we can tell the parent to just do things, but then the parent like has to just do those same features all over again. Like how do we how do we make that reusable? And one of my favorite ways is just having different components for different kinds of tasks and having multiple named slots and sometimes also scope slots can be, can be very useful for that. It can also and, uh, be very it, confusing. I'm just saying. It can also be very confusing. <laughs> it can. It can. Useful, absolutely. but oh my God. So like I have a component where it, yeah. it had become that component that nobody wanted to touch. So by that point, it was mostly just me. And then I really didn't want to touch it because I wasn't the one who made it, <laughs> which made it worse, right? But I had to build on it, which just made it worse and worse and worse. So finally, I refactored it with proper use of slots. And yeah, it had scope slots, name slots, because basically it was a layout for a component where both the parent and the child were using like that layout. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Like trying to make it work in both situations was interesting, but... Oh my God, I totally forgot where I was going with this. Oh yeah, no. I ended up getting so confused, especially with the scope slots because I'm like, Uh chicken or egg, chicken or egg. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, especially event propagation from a scope slot. Oh my God. So, so hard. Like my brain hurts so bad, but it works really well once I figured it out. Yeah, it can be confusing. But one of the situations where I find it the most useful is when you have some kind of like imperative API that you really want to like break up into smaller like responsibilities, like mapping when you're creating a map, like you might be using Google maps, you might be using Mapbox GL or something like that. You might be using something else, but maps have a lot of different responsibilities. So like it can be tempting to create like a single map component and then just pass it tons of different stuff and options. And then you're basically reinventing what the library does, but in a component <laughs> form. And so like one alternative I like is having a map component that defines the context. And then like a map markers component, maybe like a, a map layer component for like different kinds of layers that you want to put on that map. And you can put like different collections of markers on it. And that just like uses the API that 
is sort of instantiated in the map component and, and passing things with provide inject so that with provide inject, it's basically like long range props. You can think of it that way, <laughs> but, but implicit. So the map component might create an instance of a new map and then it provides that to all of its children and their grandchildren all the way down the tree, anything inside of it. And anything inside of it has the option to like look at the context, see if there's anything provided from an ancestor and inject that into itself so that they can also do things with the map like add markers. And there was a really good talk about that at Connect Tech last year, which we will drop into the show notes in case you would like to explore that topic further. It is a very interesting topic that I had never used Provide Inject, and it was actually using the map example. So if you want more info on that pattern, we will drop that in the show notes for you. Yeah. And what's nice, Chris, that I like about the example you actually brought up is there's a pattern you bring up in your workshop about the sort of vendor wrapper components. So in this instance, you know, depending on whatever map engine you're using, because you're creating these more sort of scope features as far as like map, map layer, map marker, in the event you ever need to like switch out the vendor, it's not like, you know, if you create a single component that like relies on how a single API works, all of a sudden that makes for a much more painful refactor. Uh, Whereas like in the instance you mentioned, like if you want to swap out the engine, you just have to make sure you map the right functionality to the right places, but then everything should still work. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like a really simple example is that even with icons, like I might be using some kind of uh, component from Font Awesome. I might be using Font Awesome icons and I'll, I'll be using their Font, Font Awesome icon component, but only inside of maybe something like a base icon component that I define. And that way, if I want to use like different, different icons that aren't from Font Awesome, or I want to use a different component, or like, let's say, and this, the older your app gets, the more likely you're going to need to do something like this. Maybe you want to copy the code in their component and then like paste it into your component and then modify it because like you really have some weird needs and like, it doesn't make sense for it to be in, in the main library for you to make a contribution to open source. You know, it really is specific to your app, but you, you just need to be able to modify it. And this way you, you have that freedom and you don't have to go all over the rest of the application to, to make sure that that's also changed anywhere else that you might be using an icon. You know, it, it changes that change from a huge overwhelming refactor to a, a pretty small and very reasonable refactor. Yeah, I know that when I first took your workshop, this concept of a base component is actually a great way for things where when people do get a lot of really sort of diverse requirements that seemingly like can fit in like in one component. I think that's sometimes like as developers, we love like assembling, you know, we're like, we're like puzzle solvers. And so we want to find a way to fit all the requirements in one component. And then as we get another ticket, we fit more into one, but if we can abstract that into a base component and then split them off. That is one way to at least keep somewhat a separation of concerns um, while still allowing yourself the flexibility of, you know, enhancing or refactoring in the event that, you know, it makes sense to bring it back together. So one way I have gotten myself in trouble with um, the goal (laughs) of reusable components is having a reusable component that's used in a few areas of my app. And then I go to try to use it with some other use case that maybe is just a little bit different. And 
means that I have to make some changes to that reusable component or reinvent the wheel and end up breaking things for, for the other uses of it. Has anyone else done that? Or is it just me? Which is sort of like... Oh, I've, I've totally done that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's one of those things like sometimes I'm scared of doing a reasonable component because I'm like, oh God, what if, what if this changes down the road? And then like, oh, it's going to take so much work to like make sure everything is still working. And uh, actually I'm having but, that issue yeah. right now. So I'm projecting. <laughs> <laughs> That's where like sometimes tests can be helpful. And sometimes just having like, like really good validation to make sure that like the, the, the validation I see not only as like helping people do the right thing, but also listing that all the things that people might do. So you have it there as kind of like a note, like, oh, these are all the possible colors that are okay. And now, you know, you only have to worry about people like using those colors and the, the colors are not going to likely provide like a lot of complexity, but if you know, let's say there's like a size or something like that. Like it, if you allow them to put in just like any number, like, and that's, that translates to like M's or something like that, or pixels and is, is hard coded into the CSS, then you are giving people a lot of power and there, there is so much that can break. But if you give them like three different options, small, medium, and large, and then that translates like into other values that, that you've decided that, that they can't change, then you have much fewer possibilities to, to take into account. Have you ever had to add an extra small because of the size that you <laughs> oh, yeah, defined course. at first didn't quite work? Oh yeah, extra stacks as many Excel. times as you need it. Ex, ex, extra, ex, extra, extra small. small. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not just me, okay. No, but, but honestly, like even more than size, I like to define it based on context. Like what's the context that we're using this in? Why is it small? Yeah, I'm a big um, fan of having a prop called context so that like it's very clear where it's being used and why it would be different. But that's just me. I don't know if anyone else is yeah, a big fan no, of no, having no. that. I, I, I like that too. You know, so you can define like, is this like for, for buttons, this is, a, this is a common scenario where like sometimes you want different size buttons. You know, is this an action button? Something where you're trying to really draw people's attention to it and tell them like, hey, you need to click here. Is this a submit button for a form? Is it like a, a, a search button or something like that? Is this supposed to be like an, an inline button alongside controls? And sometimes like I've had like an in, inline controls type of button and that will change like the, the size and the, the padding in different dimensions. And that way, like what users have to think about is like not that many options. You know, we, we have like this context and there's a very specific context that we use it in. And if they use like inline controls for a search button, it's very obvious that like something is wrong. Whereas with the sizes, if you just say like small, medium, large, extra small, extra small, extra, 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 extra small, then people could use that anywhere and be wondering like, why isn't it working here? It's like, well, the extra, extra, extra small was only supposed to be used for like links in the footer. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that, that, that was really just for like the contact us so that we put up a little box and say, hey, contact us here. And we wanted that to look different and we wanted it to be much smaller. That makes so much sense because I feel like a lot of times I'll see this thing where there's like a generic component, but it's supposed to address a specific context. Like, let's say like a, a toolbar that goes across the app screen, but then somebody will see it and recognize in the component design like, oh, 
a part of that component would work really well for this completely different context. And since they recognize some of it, I think they could use it. And then what they end up doing is completely altering the original generic component because it already exists and they don't want to make a new one because that's like, it feels expensive for some reason, even though it's not necessarily. And then now the original component doesn't serve its purpose anymore. And then you end up with, again, one of those complex components that people are like, oh, I don't want to touch it. And it sounds like if you provide some documentation of the intended context within the component, then that could help developers avoid or mitigate that type of issue. Yeah, for me, I, I find it very important to be given time to refactor things, you know, from time to time, because I generally will start by, you know, making very specialized components. And then over time, I'll recognize that there's this shared pattern and that I could make a reusable component. So it's very much like Ben's suggestion of it being data driven, like what's reusable. But yeah, but then sometimes I break things like today. But, you know, you know, if you're not failing, you're not learning. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that strategy too. I mean, you don't want to invent the abstractions before you know what they are. Like then, then you're really going to create headaches for yourself. And uh, yeah, it's not going to be nice. So, yeah, sometimes I do just create headaches for so, myself by prematurely I, I abstracting would, things. I would much, much rather like duplicate some functionality between components in, in most cases than like have to worry about like, oh gosh, this is used in so many different contexts. And now I don't want to touch it because I'm afraid I'll break it because all of those contexts are very different. And right now we have like some kind of balance somehow. And I don't want to upset that balance. Honestly, this is one of the reasons why I'm so excited for Vue 3 and the composition API. (laughs) It's like, finally, I could just, you know, just the logic. That is such a good segue. So like in in Vue 2, (laughs) like the main tool that we've had for composing features outside of components has been mix-ins. And mixins aren't great for, for a lot of different reasons. Have, have you all used mixins before and encountered some frustrations? Yes. I mean, I feel like what you were saying about copying and pasting, that's always the internal struggle, right? Like, do I want to copy and paste the code or do I want to have it in a mixin so that like the code that's shared everywhere is in one place, but also then I have to have a mixin? Well, but what's wrong with having a mixin? I feel like in theory, it feels good, kind of like, you know, the pre-optimization feels good, but it's so hard to remember what's in one file compared to another file. Maybe that's just me. But I feel like mm, then also yeah. because the mixing feels, it feels like the, the seed of the, the drive behind reusable components as well, which is like, oh, we'll make this thing as reusable as possible, like taken to the extreme where then it's like, well, so many components are already using this one file. Anything that I need shared across any subset of them, I'll just throw them in the mixin, And then you end up with, a super gigantic mix-in that you're importing everywhere when you only need like a small fraction of it. And so you never want to use it. And also it's hard to remember what's in it. At least that's my experience with mix-ins. Yeah. Yeah, I end up with magic properties on things and I'm like, wait, where did that come from? That's not in this file. What? And I'm like, oh, right. It's the mix-in. Or it's one of these (laughs) mix-ins. Yeah. Fortunately, I have... Stayed away from them just like because very early on I had frustration with them. So I would much rather copy and paste code any day. You just put so, everything in the one true mix-in so you never have to hunt for which <laughs> The one mix-in to rule them all. <laughs> just like here's a bunch of extra properties just in case. Exactly, just in case. Yeah, so I, there is one context that I do really like mix-ins for. And that's for 
the first stage of reorganizing a component and identifying what the different features are. So I'll, I'll separate one component out into basically just a bunch of different objects. And then I'll export default mix-ins, all of those options combined in an array. So I have all of those mix-ins. I have like, let's say for the search feature we were talking about, I might have search bar as one mix-in. You know, this is all the stuff related to the search bar. I might have one mix-in for search results. I might have another mix-in for like search sorting. And I might have another mix-in for like search ads. Just to identify like all the different parts of the JavaScript at the very least that have to do with these different features and figuring out and oftentimes like I'll cut and paste and like move things around as I'm still defining my categories for like, what are the different concerns? What are the different things this is trying to solve? And then I'll still have that in one component, but at least like then, like I have a name for each feature and it's much, much easier to find stuff because I don't have like, you know, a few things for a feature like sprinkled in data and then a few things sprinkled in computed and then some methods and then also part of like what I'm doing on created is for this one feature. But like, I, if I just want the flow of like, how do, how do we make search results go? How do we get it and then show it? How is that? How do we do that? I just want to see all of that together. And the same thing for when we're like filtering search results or, or adding in the ads. I want that stuff all together too. And so I can see all these different concerns. But previously, there wasn't a great way to, I mean, some people would use like scope slots for this kind of thing and have like data gener- like data providers, which I strongly believe are an anti-pattern. It has so many problems. We don't have, that, that could be a whole other episode. I won't go into it right now. But as Ari was saying, the, the composition API solves a lot of these problems, like gives us a way to capture these different features in functions and then choose how we want to put them together. And it's a little bit lower level, but it's so much more flexible. Like it actually, I, it doesn't feel super hacky the whole time, which is what all the alternatives feel to me. Just like, oh gosh, I, this sort of like feels a little bit better, but also not like it feels so much more complex in some ways. And sometimes I'm not even sure if I'm happier after a refactor. Like it was almost simpler when I just had like <laughs> a big list of mix-ins yeah. in one file. And sometimes that, that, is fine if that actually solves the problem and makes it like easier to work out, like to think about for you. You can just leave that. I wouldn't separate the mixins into multiple files though, because then like there will still be some gray areas where there are some properties that you're referring to in multiple different features, multiple different mixins within that component. So, am I understanding correctly that you like to use mixins as kind of like a, a temporary like working or or thinking space where you're chunking or or binning things by like the, the aspect of the feature that they address? Yeah, it allows me to like reorder my code without changing how any of it works. So it's an so organizational tool within a component. I see. And so then I have at the end like a blank component that just has all these mix-ins. That kind of reminds me of like KonMari where it's like you have to get all of your t-shirts in one pile because they might be everywhere <laughs> on the house. And then you can decide what you want to keep and how to organize it once they're all together. She learned that looking at my code, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And then she wrote a book at it. I I 
feel like I should get royalties, but I don't know. So the check. Maybe I, think I, I moved. I, I did move. So maybe just to just like didn't get my new address. I don't know, but whatever. Wait, I'm does this mean it. we can throw out any code that doesn't bring us joy? <laughs> 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 I might not have a code base left. <laughs> yeah, if it doesn't spark joy, just delete it. Um, I can hear her in my mind now looking at my feature and being like, I love mess. <laughs> I would, I, I, I would, I would love that. I would love to see like commits that are just like a bunch of deleted files. And it's like, wow, we cleaned up like half of our code base. Commit messages just didn't spark joy. <laughs> <laughs> I, so my manager will occasionally just look at my commit messages and every once in a while when I'm in a rush, like I will write some ridiculous commit messages like did stuff and he'll call me out every time. So I feel like at okay, some but point seriously, I really does to have didn't spark oh, wait, I, I fix it so that it actually, actually does the stuff. <laughs> so like usually it's like I have to switch contacts and like quickly abandon what I was working on. And I don't mm-hmm. exactly remember what all I had done. <laughs> yeah. Just me. <laughs> no, it's not just you. That's mm-hmm. just you. But I, I do sometimes like commit just like I, I go back at my, my, my diff. And then commit like different files or different parts of files, like one at a time to pretend like I didn't just do all that work and then commit stuff at the end. <laughs> I mean, it zone? does, it, like, it is functional. Yeah. But yeah, I do. I do forget. And I get, I get caught off. It's just like, Ooh, but like, Oh, if I did that, that would open up this possibility. And then it's like, but I need to make sure that, that would work first. And it's like, okay, it does work. And then you end up screwing yourself over because you didn't commit after that one thing was working and then you started working on the other thing and now you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can't. Yeah, there are a lot of times where I, I tell myself like, okay, today I am updating dependencies. I'm just updating dependencies. I'm not doing anything else, just updating dependencies right now. And then I'm going to commit. I'm going to push. And then I'm going to do something else. And so many times, like I end up like updating dependencies and it's like, oh, wait, so like looking at the change log, like there's this new feature. Like, could we do that differently? Like, I want to see if we could fix, oh, oh and, okay, and let's, oh, wow. Oh, that's really cool. And then that's, that simplifies this problem. And then it turns out like I haven't just updated dependencies. I've done a lot of unnecessary work because <laughs> I got caught I up and excited. I'm so guilty of that. Mm-hmm. And like, then I'm just I'll fixing just, the one thing, but I'm like, oh, but I see that. Um, okay. And then I'll just take package.json in the lock file and I'll commit that with a message that says updated dependencies. And then I'll see what's left and figure out like what else I need to do. <laughs> so the composition API, that's, that's something that could be like a, a whole episode onto itself and, and probably should be. Mm-hmm. And probably will um, be. <laughs> yes. But, but Ben, what are some people like as, as a member and representative of, of the view team, what are some things that people should know about the composition API now? You know, as of recording, Vue 3 has not coming, come out yet. Right. Uh, Vue 3 is currently in beta. I think the first and foremost important thing to remember about the Composition API is that it is additive. There is certainly a lot of hype. And as we talked about, there's a lot of reasons to be excited and to learn about the Composition API. But it's not something you need to know right off the bat uh, when it comes to, especially if you're coming into Vue. It's not one of those essential things that if you don't know it, you can't build anything with Vue. The options API will still be there. And that's the one that I think most of you will start with. And then as you need it, you know, I think Sarah has a great line where it says, you know, the thing I love about Vue is that it gives me what I want and then it gets out of my way. And the composition API is one of those things that as you hear, as like Chris and Ari have mentioned, like 
when you have so many features and things have become so complex that you're like, how do I, I need to do things in a cleaner way, then this is the time to reach for the composition API. But yeah, my first and foremost thing is you don't need to learn it like right off the bat to be productive. He was so sad to learn that when I told him last week that the composition API was definitively not replacing the options API. And I think he may have been the only person on the planet to feel sad about that. <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> He just really doesn't like everything being on the this context. And I'm like, that's so awesome. <laughs> there are times where that annoys the hell out of me, but... <laughs> but then you break out of the loop with the composition API. Yeah, but no, the only reason I hate this is for object destructuring is because I can't. <laughs> because this. <laughs> <laughs> but but then, like, uh, well, no, I'll, I'll troll you with a bunch of questions on another episode. <laughs> We do API. Yeah, I guess like I Sounds think of good. the composition API as being kind of like Vuex. You don't need it off the bat and you'll know when you do need it. And that's when you should reach for it. Yeah. I also think of it like scope slots. Like I actually had not, I was not aware of that technique forever. And I found ways around it for the longest time. And certainly when I learned it, it was like, oh, this is cool. I could have done that better. But it didn't certainly stop me from being productive, even though, yes, it is a common technique used in a lot of really complex code bases. And I, I hope that pe- more people will see the composition API that way. That like, you know, you reach for it when you need it. So there definitely is uh, a lot to talk about in, in terms of reusable components and just organizing components and organizing features used by components in general. And we, we don't have time to talk about all of them today, but we'll definitely have to have some follow-up episodes to dive more deeply into some specific patterns that we've talked about and even more that we haven't talked about. But for now, let's wrap up. So thank you all of us for for joining us this week. This has been such an honor once again to have all of you on. Where can people find you on Twitter? We usually don't do this part, but since we are the guests, essentially, let's do it. And GitHub, whatever. I guess I'll start because by now, because of Chris's ongoing joke, probably everyone knows I'm (laughs) at Gloomy Loomy. That's so funny. I'm also at Gloomy Loomy. Me too. Me too. I also have the gloomy yeah. loomy. Mine's with yeah. a double O though. Oh, uh, okay. I was like, well, I mean, there is a double O, but I see what you're <laughs> Two double O's. <laughs> I mean, Lumi, for mine, Lumi is spelled with a U. Oh. Just to be very clear. Yeah. L-U-M-I. L-U-M-I. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, I think you copied me or something. But yes, I am also at Gloomy Lumi on GitHub, though there's really nothing of any interest on my GitHub. So. Yeah, and I, I, I want... I want to make it really clear to anyone, like we want your feedback. You know, we want ways that we can, we can make the show better and, and ways that we can make our advice better. So if there's anything that we talked about that you disagree with, please send a lengthy message, like break it into as many messages as you need to, to, to tell us why we're wrong. At Gloomy Lumi, Gloomy, just like it's spelled, L-U-M-I. And, and tell us what we can do better. We really want to hear from you. Thank you so much. But in all seriousness, if you would like to send feedback on the show to Gloomy Loomy, I would love that. So that one was okay. <laughs> well, I'll go next. Uh, you can find me on, I'm pretty sure I have all the internet of things under Ben Code Zen. So GitHub, Twitter, whatnot. You can find me under that moniker. I'm at Chrissy Fritz everywhere. And I'm at Half Test 6 on Twitter. I think it's on, it's linked on the page. So yeah. Yep. And find all our info on the website. Enjoythefew.io. And let's do our picks. Ari, would you like to start? I always have to start, but yeah, okay. 
I have two picks this week. The first one is a show called Mythic Quest, which unfortunately is only on Apple TV Plus, which I literally got just to watch this show. And I will say it was worth it. So, so I think it's only like five bucks a month or something. So eh. I realize that right now that might not be affordable for some people, but if you can, it's a good show. It's about a game studio that produces a very popular MMORPG and sort of the, what's a good word? Chaos that is part of their process. <laughs> and <laughs> I feel like uh, most developers will unfortunately identify with it on some level. <laughs> but hopefully not. Hopefully you are not in a situation that is exactly like the show. If you are, please quit your job. But yeah, so that's my first pick. And my second pick is actually just having very generous friends if you are playing Animal Crossing. Shout outs to Tessa and Ben, who both helped me out this week. So yeah, make, make sure that you uh, are helping your friends as well, though. Don't just take. Come on now. <laughs> and those are my picks. <laughs> By the way, she, she's not talking about me. I'm not like, she thanked everyone but me. So I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a jerk who just took things. Uh, I'm just not playing Animal Crossing. I want to make that clear. I mean, I guess, yeah. That's why I didn't mention it. <laughs> there, 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 there wasn't, there wasn't like subtext I was not sliding, yeah. <laughs> Chris is not allowed to play games like that. <laughs> okay, Ben, how about your picks? All right. Well, following uh, actually Ari's inspiration, I have a song recommendation, which is Lonely by Joel Corey. So if you like, so like EDM with, Female vocals. That's a new song that came out recently that I really enjoy. And for TV picks, uh, Westworld on HBO, uh, season three just wrapped up, I think, this past Sunday. Although uh, when this episode comes out, it'll be probably a couple of weeks. So if you haven't watched it yet, I know a lot of people were sort of disillusioned by season two. But if you enjoyed Westworld season one, I do think season three is worth the time. And yeah, always down to chat more about that. So you can message me at Bloomy Loomy and oh then God. we can talk about Westworld. <laughs> Oh, you're in on it too. <laughs> wow, Ben. The one time you don't get trolled and you're already building up bad karma. <laughs> yeah. And those would be my picks for the week. All right, Tessa, how about you? Yeah. So I'd like to recommend an article with not the most appealing, in my opinion, title. It was a piece in the New York Times called Why Zoom is Terrible. And I am picking this because last week we talked with Debbie about how digital meetings and conferences and meetups feel different from real life and some of the reasons that we think that is. And the, this New York Times piece expanded on some other potential hypotheses. So if you found that discussion interesting, you might want to check out this piece. Should, should I ask you your picks, Chris? What, what are your picks? Oh, oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you want to. Yeah. Since you asked, uh, I guess my pick today is Supernatural VR on the Quest. Uh, thank you so much, by the way. Yeah. Of course, I'm a giver, not just a taker. Anyway, Supernatural VR in the Quest is similar to Beat Saber, which I've talked before about before on the show, but it's in beautiful locations, really actually focused on workouts. Each workout has a personal trainer and a bunch of like songs to back your workouts, like popular songs that you would actually know. And my favorite mapper from the Beat Saber community is at least one of the founders or like one of the prominent people in this company making this game. And there's, there's so much there that I, I wish Beat Saber would, would adopt, would take back. 
because there, there's some really, really nice touches there that not only make it a great workout, but also just make it more fun to dance. And workouts are like anything from like 15 minutes to, I don't know, I don't know, longer than that, I guess. I usually do like the 15 to 20, 25 minute ones. And they've just been a blast so far. Like I'm thinking, I don't have a quest right now, but I'm thinking of buying a quest just for this game, basically. And yeah, it's $20 a month right now, which some people like, basically, if you look at any of the bad reviews on it, it's all like, oh, fantastic game, but I don't want to pay $20 per month, which is like, (laughs) okay, that's fair. That is more expensive than a lot of games. And if you're comparing it to something like Beat Saber, where you can pay like $20 or $30 once and then play it as much as you want, that's great. But if you compare this to a gym membership and the fact that you are actually getting like personalized workouts, like that's pretty freaking awesome. $20 per month for a gym membership that like a gym that you don't actually have to leave the house for and is really fun. Yeah, sign me up. So check that out. That's really cool. It does look really, really awesome. And I think they're going to eventually raise the price. So you probably want to get in now so you can lock in at $20 a month. It definitely is worth more than that, I think. And I am in no way affiliated with them. I just love it. As of this just recording, the Oculus, the Oculus Quest is currently in uh, back order. So, you know. Yeah, I know. I won't be getting it now. I, mean, yeah, I just put my email at almost twice the price. <laughs> you hyped it up and people can't even get it. Now that Not at the time of recording. Just wait till release this one. Not at the time of release. Wait till release this one, okay? <laughs> Thanks to you, Chris. I've now signed up. And so we'll see. I'll let you know if uh, I get the email. (laughs) Thank you, everyone, for joining us this week. Until next time, enjoy the view. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash view.